Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way Podcast. I like to explore areas uh, that I don't know anything about, uh, like I, something I don't have any expertise in, because I, it's its own kind of um, charge or electrical spark of curiosity. And in recent years, especially since George, George Floyd's murder, I have been much more interested in systemic um, injustice um, and also how white supremacy, patriarchy still very much have a strong influence on this country to the point, obviously, as most of you know, I started a business with my partner, Virginia, called Massive that coaches history shapers that are trying to create systemic change in these areas. Um, so today I'm really excited to have on as a new friend of mine, uh, Malia Dunn is based in Phoenix. Malia is a DEI practitioner and she works with leaders of organizations to build an on-ramp for them to begin to hear the voices of the marginalized. Um, and so I connected with Malia. Um, she actually read something I wrote a while ago and is including it in her embrace course which i will link to her website and the course in uh, the show notes so welcome alia thank you thank you yeah this is exciting i'm excited <laughs> to i'm excited to connect with you and with the third way audience yes thank you and so what we're talking about today is it's basically the the to topic or the title of the episode is how to talk about privilege and i think this is unique because we're both white um, and we're white people talking about privilege. And I have this observation that we need to do that more. White people need to be talking about this more. And so today we're going to go back and forth a bit here about how to do that. And I think a, a natural starting point is what is privilege? When you, when you, we hear that word, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Oof. And I, I come to this from a, like a couple a couple different definitions, right, or kind of styles of sources. Um, and yes, uh, you referenced we're, we're both white, um, mm -hmm. and privilege does exists in so many ways in our social identities beyond um, just our race. But I do really appreciate your willingness to lean in and talk about um, our racial identity and mm -hmm. and our privilege in it uh, mm -hmm. because. We haven't, and we've never learned how. So um, what is privilege? I think if you were to look it up in a dictionary, right, or a textbook, simply it would be a right or immunity granted as a particular benefit, advantage, or favor. Mm, okay. I think when we layer, right, layer that social justice lens to that, um, what we recognize, and, and certainly there are um, far better scholars than me who who have really done the work around this. I'm thinking of uh, Peggy McIntosh uh, and her seminal article, um, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of White Privilege. But mm -hmm. we would say this is unearned social power accorded mm -hmm. by the formal and informal institutions of society to all members of a dominant group. So for example, dominant group in our US society could be white folks, could be Christian folks, right? When we start thinking about different, could be able-bodied um, people, men, mm -hmm. heterosexual or straight, how, how you prefer to use that language. And what the, the tricky thing about mm -hmm. um, 
privilege is how it's um, often invisible, right. unrecognized, right? Um, by those of us who have it because of our socialization and because of how powerful dominant norms are. Right. Um, but whether we recognize it or not, um, it does put us in an advantage over those who don't hold that same identity. Yeah. Thank you. That's a nice wide ranging um, definition or set of definitions. Yeah. I, I think for me, I, I want to kind of answer this a little differently because of how I got to the definition that I use yeah. is so I didn't like the word privilege. I didn't like the idea of privilege when I heard it, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And part of it was, and I think a lot, and this kind of goes into the second question, but a lot of white white people that are kind of have my social labels, that white, Gen X and older, rural, not college educated, you know, we've had to bust our ass to make it in in, in the world. In the and and so I used to think, well, that's it's kind of offensive, you know. Like I don't have I could see why they would think that of like, you know, Andrew Bernard from the office, you know, that kind of waspy privilege or you know uh-huh. that, that kind of classic, you know, pr- I for me at the time people. when I first it was Paris Hilton. Yeah, Paris I, Hilton. I, I just dist- yes. yeah, I wanted to distance <laughs> myself from the language from the concept as well. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there's a couple of factors that changed. Just one is, is that I realized that I did struggle. I did have things I had to overcome, childhood abuse, poverty, um, you know, trying to make a living being a young dad. Logan was born when I was 22, but I didn't have to do any of that while being a person of color or being gay or being a woman or all the other social labels. I did that as a white American, straight white American male. Mm-hmm. And I think the other factor too was uh, my former partner and uh, Lena, her sister Leah is married to uh, Eddie, who's a black man. And so they have mixed race kids. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm from rural America. We didn't have a lot of racial diversity, mostly white and, um, and Hispanic. Uh, And, but being in a family with people of color exposes you to some of the things that you would not otherwise know. And I, then I started to see it. So my current definition, this is again, as a, as a word nerd and a brand poet, I don't like the word privilege. I wish it was called advantage, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is what it is. But my definition is privilege is a systemic advantage extended to those that look like the people that created the systems. Mm. And that's really, to me, the simple aspect of this is, if you are a white American, straight male, and a Christian, those are kind of the big ones. You can add college educated that sometimes too. That's who created most of the systems that we operate in. No, I'm couching that. They've created all of the systems that we're operating in. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think it's so important that us white folk have these conversations. You know, we keep in mind that. LBJ was not some, you know, equity saint. He was kind of a racist himself, but he did sign the civil rights bill. And there's been other things where it, the, the machinery that within the system has, has created more, more and more opportunities, you know, to the point that the U S despite our issues is still is one of the most diverse countries on earth, especially as a, as a, you know, as an industrial nation and part of the, you know, G 12 or whatever it's called. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's my definition. And yeah, I, 
So any, any other thoughts to that before we go on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. And I, I also find, I find your definition, right. Can be an accessible space for people who are like hearing it for the first time and also like challenging it. I have yeah. a um, friend and colleague, Natalie Thorson, who defines privilege as access to resources that increase your chances of living a happy, healthy life and the ability to control and influence culture. So when you named kind of the creation of the systems, right, that ability to control and influence culture, I think is, is quite powerful. You know, I also yeah. think about, and, and I can get into this a little bit more as we move forward, but um, I think privilege can be, I, in some time, the ways I've experienced privilege is a freedom from what I would call a mental tax, right? A freedom of some of the thought labor. So yeah. um, as an able-bodied person, as I was the caregiver for my brother, as he was dying of cancer and his experience went from being, right, also able-bodied to needing a walker, then needing a wheelchair and right, moving to a place where he was eventually very significantly disabled before his death. Mm -hmm. um, and then being his driver, like, the, the time tax and the mental tax of mm -hmm. what it would take for me to take him to a single one hour appointment was usually a three hour plus experience with right. getting him in and out of the car, taking care of things, but also then navigating places that while they're probably meeting ADA compliance um, yeah. are still not entirely meeting his needs or my needs as his support, right? Some place, a place can have a bathroom that's in compliance, but if somebody moved the trash can over by the hand dryer, all right, now we're mm -hmm. moving things around. And so that right. um, thinking about how to navigate the systems, you know, in that weren't designed for you. Right. I think that's a, I is, think it's, yes, very salient point. It's how, it's how navigating the systems that were not designed for you. Being in partnership with an immigrant has been interesting too. Um, and what how how that has just opened my eyes to a lot of things. And this is something I want to point out too to, to, to people that are maybe uncomfortable with the concept of privilege is um, it's not about you. It's not about the person. It's about the systems. And, and, and I say this as a, a Christian, I don't really like that term, but as a Christian, let's just use it. It's like, you, uh, Jesus spoke against systems, not people. And so, and he, and especially oppressive systems. And it's, it, what I see obviously goes hand in hand is the denial of systemic racial, dis, systemic injustice, especially around race and gender and sexuality. Those are kind of the big three. The denial of that goes hand in hand with people that are uncomfortable with the word privilege, which is why we have to talk about it. Um, yes. and it's not really ideology. It's, it's about human rights. Um, it's not really about like a system of government per se. It, it, that's actually the system of government that allowed for there to be slavery and misogyny, institutionalized slavery and misogyny and genocide and things like that is what created some of the systems that people that don't look like you and me are still dealing with today. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So when you, so when you, how would you approach, and this is kind of a, maybe a funny question, but I think it's practical, <laughs> just how would you approach a white person to talk about privilege? 
and you could couch, you could break that down to maybe they're a, a business leader or they're like a family member, or maybe they're like a MAGA person. Yeah. Um, how would you do that? Um, you know what? I, it's interesting. Cause I was thinking I wanted to break it out in different ways, but in very different um, categories than what you did. So for me, I was thinking about um, talking to a white person, um, but also recognizing um, the fullness of their identities and intersections beyond race, um, right? If I'm talking with someone who holds, who's very much like me, where really being a female, and I will say a, a cisgender female, which cisgender puts me in a place of privilege and a female puts me in a place of marginalization, but really other than being a female, I carry identities that hold privilege. And that is a lot. So, right, if I'm talking to a white person who's got a similar um, constellation, if you will, Mm -hmm. of privilege as I do, I might speak to them differently from someone who is, who, you know, kind of your story, as you shared, like growing up in poverty, living, so, and using some of those experiences of marginalization as a, as a pathway into empathy and understanding um, mm. I think the first thing, and, and you kind of led to it in your your definition, right, but is like shifting out of the literal, right, shifting out of the literal um, language of privilege and really tying it um, just into wealth and um, and recognizing that like cognitive dissonance, when we start to come in, come into information or knowledge that is inconsistent with the ways that we have seen ourselves, the ways that we have raised our values, um, it is a doozy. It can be really um, earth-shaking, right? I know when I was early in this, I was like, wait, wait, so nothing I've been taught is actually accurate? (laughs) What am I going to do? And so um, I like to start with a low-risk category, if you will. And this, I want to nod to one of my mentors and coaches, Dr. Kathy O'Bear is um, if we go to a very kind of, again, low risk, who is the world designed for right-handed or left-handed people? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've asked that to a group, right. Anywhere, you know, it is a resounding right-handed people and you've get, you know, immediately all the left-handed people, if this is virtual in the chat are starting to like talk about their desks or the scissors in grade school or having a parent or grandparent who would even like smack their left hand to get them to become right-handed, right? All of these things, but it's very, think about power tools. Think about Mm -hmm. so many, think about sitting at a dinner table when you get next to the left-handed person and you're like, oh, wait, we have to navigate Mm -hmm. this because it wasn't designed for us. So kind of starting there and going, oh, okay, like I see, I see that. And then how can we, how can we build upon that to then talking eventually um, about race? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think really what's important with white folks, um, and I say that it may be important for everyone, but I, I've only ever been a white person. So (laughs) That is uh, really my my area of strength, but to honor that we've rarely been offered support or education on how to talk about race and the dynamic right. of race. Um, in fact, my story, and I know many of us, another another colleague of mine, Dr. Molly Monahan, 
who uh, runs Social Justice Kids talks about how at our earliest years, like we may have been shushed or quieted down when we were just curious about, right, the dark skin of somebody in the grocery store, but our parents or caregivers weren't equipped with how to hold that from a place of curiosity. And so it was like, you know, don't, don't Mm -hmm. ask that. So we learned very early on, not only did we not get to learn about it, but what we did learn unconsciously is we're not supposed to talk about race. Mm -hmm. And so then the emotional charge of asking people to do something that they were socialized to not do, right? Right. There's a hurdle um, right there. So I think when we can start to you know, peel away the layers, like what you said, this privilege is not a suggestion that you haven't struggled. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, like you said, the word is complicated in that way. It is not a suggestion that you haven't worked hard or that you don't have talent or skills. Um, it is certainly not a reflection of what is in your heart, because I think so often, I know the reason I distanced myself the first time I read an article, mm-hmm. I'm lying. I'm lying. Let me say the first handful of times okay. <laughs> I read an article about white privilege. You know, it took me a while to actually start going, okay, um, what is this? But I I didn't I didn't want to face that that could be me. It was much easier for me to dodge and put it into a place of yeah. of wealth. Yeah. Um yeah, what does this mean about who I am? Can I still be a good person? I I do care about equality. What does this mean if if I have this privilege? I don't want it. I want to give it back. Well, that's not an option. Yeah. Um, so then how how do we work with it? So I think looking at looking at the the relevance and kind of just honoring and holding that space of this is brand new. And like you said, it's personally frightening. Like, yes, it's not about the person, but right. we do have to move through an awareness. Um, and so I really try to, with any white folks, um, business leader or mm-hmm. right, my mom, when we're talking over dinner and we're watching the news and, and she makes a comment and my mom is a, a retired educator. So we'll go back and kind of talk about choices that she had made when she was an educator and now in, you mm-hmm. know, well into retirement, recognizing things that were misaligned, impact that was misaligned with her intention and heart for what she wanted to do for her students. Um, but right. to really hold that with care. And when I, I think about holding it with care is not the same as holding it in a place of comfort. Um, right. right. Uh, the, the discomfort will allow us to build a muscle of resilience to stay actually to stay in these emotionally charged conversations to push against the phenomena that, you know, Robin D'Angelo was named white fragility. Um, I know, I know, I would say, I believe white fragility is a real thing. And I also believe hearing right from the voices of um, many women of color that fragility doesn't feel like a great word to them, right? If the impact, the fragility is the, is my internal experience. Yeah. Um, and my, and it it focuses around my intention, but the impact felt by people of color is harm. Right. Right. Um, so holding that and holding space for that and having spaces to process that, um, that's why I really appreciate, um, like white accountability spaces, constructive white conversation spaces, 
to do some of this processing and with, with folks who are further along the, the anti-racist journey than I am, but can hold that in a place. And they're not, there telling me that it's okay. Oh, what you did is okay. I know you're a good person because that's not actually up for debate. Right. right? It's not up for debate if we're good people or not. We are because we're in this work. We're having these conversations. We are well-intended, well-meaning folks who have awareness, um, spots that are areas of improvement for how we actually show up. Um, yeah, and I would like so, to. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I could. I would just the train would leave the station. <laughs> and, oh, please, I'd love to hear. Well, you. I think that's really interesting because I you gave me a lot to think about there. Um, in that approach, um, for me, it's I. Well, first of all, I do this with anything if I can. Is I make I make the th- I find the third thing. You know, when I when I coached football for fifteen years in Idaho, and there was a. That I, I had a um, a set of agreements that all the parents signed and the players signed. And so mm. if there was an issue, I didn't say, look what you did. You did this. I'll say, well, the agreement that you signed says that you won't show up to practice drunk, you know, whatever. And I mean, it didn't say that specifically, but I would use that as an example. And what that did is it kind of diffused that the, the, the sensitivity that people have of, you know, of shame. Shame is a Mm-hmm. A, a, a very human and actually mammalian trait that's a, around safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd make it about systems. So I say to people, this is not about how you treat people. This is about how the system treats people. And I say, have you ever been part of a system that mistreated you? Everybody can say yes to that. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, and so some form or another, you can find a system that has mistreated you. I said, Okay, imagine then, so you have imagine then that you are mistreated because of your social labels. Imagine that we're all equal in God's eyes. That's true. But in real life society, we've all been assigned social labels, and those social labels um, were mostly assigned by the people that created the systems. And so then those systems then told you what you could and could not be and do. Mm-hmm. That's what they they decided that they would they could they how would narrow that is for all right. of us right. right and it's all about control and nobody wants to be controlled these are systems of control they're systems of exploitation I also like to point out and this is especially true when it comes to things like trans rights or um, other uh, other things is I said just to, and I find their point of view uh, like they're like something is, is let's say they're a meat eater and they love meat I say imagine if the world was run by vegans. And you were not allowed to express yourself as a mediator. How would that feel? It's mm-hmm. like, well, it's the same concept, just with a different thing. Or imagine if we decided we were going to pass a bunch of laws and we couldn't teach or talk about redheaded people. You know, how, how stupid would that be? And how horrible would that be for people that were redheaded? But that's what we we're doing. We would never have had the gift of Ed Sheeran. <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it, that's funny. Or Andy Dalton. Um, so, um, there's that. And then a lot of people I've noticed when it comes to privilege, they do come from, um, you know, they, they're, they're religious. They're like, well, you know, I, I see people the way God sees people. I, all lives matter and all that. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I get why they say that. I don't agree with it, but I get why they say that. And, but I like to point out that there's a difference between white Jesus and brown Jesus. And they could do a whole episode on that. 
But if you, if you, <laughs> if you worship or you follow white Jesus, of course you don't think there's privilege. But if you understand that Jesus was a brown man in a uh, occupied territory from a lower class uh, and was a laborer, then maybe you would have a little bit more empathy for the fact that of, around systemic oppression and the fact that he never, he spoke against systems, not people. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that always works, but it kind of goes back to your thing about a bridge or an on-ramp. Like I'm willing to have that conversation. I'll, I, I'll even, I'd even talk to a, I mean, I got, there's that joke, like you ever heard about that new app that uh, shows you who in your family are racist. It's called Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, so I got some family members that are pretty racist and, um, and so I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to have those conversations with anybody um, because, because I'm not, it's not about, it's ultimately, unless they are doing things that are specifically and explicitly racist, it, this is not about them. It's about the systems that we're all part of. Right. And that we were raised and nurtured in right? Like this has been all our, our socialization, um, mm-hmm. systems of reward or punishment, right? How we thrive or don't thrive. Um, however many years you've been on the planet, that's how many years you've been, um, right. Uh, socialized and conditioned within yes. the system. Um, yeah. I think I, I, I like you, like you, um, sit in a space of like, yes, we're all human beings and we can all connect and we all have potential. And I believe that to be true. Um, I also believe that our world is set up where there are barriers and things standing in the way. Um, We all have something, right? There's all, we all have some barrier or struggle, right? In this system, Um, but some more than others. And those right. barriers, right, those barriers that are in existence are limiting us from actually connecting human to human um, and fully. And so that's uh, the first time I had heard the, the quote, I believe it's um, Leela Watson around, um, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting my time. Mm-hmm. But if you've come here with the, I may be getting it wrong. If you've come here knowing that your liberation is bound up into mine, then let's work yeah. together. I love that. The first, it- yeah. The first time I heard that, I was like, what do you mean my liberation? I'm liberated. I'm white. I have all of this privilege. And then I started to recognize, like you said, these narrow, narrow yeah. ways in which we live, that we are all following rules yeah. that if we break them, we get ostracized. So we're not actually exploring our fullest humanity. Right. right. And that's why, um, whether it's uh, racial liberation or, or gender liberation or sexual orientation or whatever, identity liberation, if everyone benefits, um, you know, everyone benefits when we do that. And I also think like, um, we have to acknowledge something too, that the maybe the well-intended more liberal or left-wing policies have actually made a lot of things worse. And, and I say this to my, like my friends that are hardcore Democrats, like we have to have an honest conversation about the war on poverty as an example. Um, And, or um, the, 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 you know, urban housing situation and, you know, crime, you know, crime in the, in, in large cities in particular, 
-hmm. we have to have those conversations. But I also, on the other hand, think that progress is not equity. Progress is on the road to somewhere and things are generally better statistically than they were, you know, you know, 20 years ago. But this is a long, long road because we are not just dismantling systems. We are creating new ones as we go in a lot of ways. And so shifting to the the final question is uh, Virginia and I, when what we're doing with massive, very much believe that the main driving force, at least in the United States of social change and systemic change are businesses. Mm. You look at most of your policies and legislation, the government is reacting to what businesses are doing anyway, whether it's environmental uh, back to same, same sex benefits to, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and we, you know, there's a, a, a growing database of, of information now or, or data, the growing set of data that shows that companies that focus on DEI have uh, higher profitability and the whole DeSantis bullshit thing about go, go woke, go broke is just not true. I mean, but no. like, Bud Light got hammered. But other than that, Mark Cuban <laughs> talked about this the other day. I was like, that's bullshit. But did Bud Light get hammered because they backpedaled? It, I, and I, I don't know. It, I, 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 don't I know. followed yeah. it a little bit, but not yeah. enough to know. I, it could it could be. And it's also like, and I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, from a branding perspective, it, it's, um, I think the way Target handled the blowback was smarter. And then I like, I like it when companies are like, you know, I don't fucking care what your opinion is. This is what we're going to do. And I, I admire that. Um, so anyway, so you work with leaders, you work with organizations, that's your like main thing. And so I'm curious how, how might privilege show up in organizational cultures? And I would say that in the non-obvious ways, you know, obviously if you're in at a hierarchy and you're the CEO, you get away with a lot more shit than the, the part-time janitor. Outside of hierarchical or title-based privilege, what are some other areas that privilege, how privilege sneaks into organizational cultures? Yeah. Um, I want to think about this. I want to start two, but I'm sure there are more ways. Um, So I think like, how does unexamined privilege show up in organizational culture? And then for (laughs) folks who are maybe doing the work, how does strategic use of privilege toward greater equity, inclusion, and change show up in organizations. So um, unexamined privilege right, continues to hinder organizational culture if the goal, if the goal, and I hope it is, mm-hmm. if the goal is to move toward more inclusive, equitable spaces of belonging. Um, and that's due to how many common dynamics and unproductive behaviors, again, unexamined, that uh, those of us in privileged identities um, have and how we, sh- how we show up, um, how we um, focus on how far we've come opposed to how far we need to go um, in ways where oftentimes folks who have a privileged identity are often given the benefit of the doubt if something goes um, wrong, um, how folks are holding on to cultural beliefs and norms often without ex- examination or questioning, like, why do we do it? this way. Um, and actually, if, if you'd want to include it in the show notes, I've got a great 
Um, I've got a great handout that yeah, is please. some of these common unproductive behaviors yeah. that folks do. Cause I know the first time I looked through it, it was like, Ugh, oh shit, <laughs> <laughs> I do that one. I do that yeah. one. I'm getting right. better at this one. Um, yeah. But I really think it's about kind of who is centered. So how are decisions in an organization being made? How are policies and programs designed? Um, how, what, what breadth of difference? I know you, you named um, what you said, uh, race, gender, sexual orientation. Um, and then even within those, right, these mm -hmm. kind of subcategories, if you will, around um, immigration, citizenship mm -hmm. status, um, with gender, single parent households. Um, right. So by category of difference, right, who does a policy benefit? Or mm -hmm. um, by category of difference, who might have barriers to actually receiving the benefit of this policy? Who might receive unintended advantages and then creating this kind of um, imbalance within an organization? Who was in the room? And, that, and maybe not who just was in the room, but who was heard and whose input was taken seriously when the policy practice program, right, was being designed or thought up. And, and also maybe at that point, then if, if there are voices that are necessary and they're missing, who do we need to consult with? Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to, just because today is, today is Juneteenth, as, as we're I recording, <laughs> I imagine it won't be when we're, once, when we, when you take the podcast live, but I've been noticing through the weekend and today um, posts on social media accounts, right, from, from some of my own uh, Black colleagues and friends or people I don't know, but I follow because they're phenomenal influencers, but really naming some of the concerns about organizational cultures mm -hmm. and um, kind of celebrating Juneteenth and sure it's, it's, a, it's a day off. And that's great. And that might give an organization some, some good PR bumps. Um, but what's happening day in and day out at that organization? What's supporting Black staff members to feel that they can show up and have trusted allies who are going to call out or call in microaggressions? Has the racial pay gap been addressed at every level of the organization? So, you know, it, many of these organizations are involved in finance as financial institutions that are doing this. So like, what have they done to revisit their lending practices to root out redlining and systemic racism? So yes, like I do think we celebrate the progress that we've got. It's fant fantastic that Juneteenth is now a national holiday. And if we only sit, stop there and don't recognize how much further we need to go, that perpetuates harm and pain. So I think in strategic use of privilege showing up in organizations are when folks can um, work toward normalizing a culture where people can practice loving accountability and call out, call in. There's, you know, I know there are dynamics around that, but what if, what if an organization could normalize a call-in culture? Mm -hmm. So if I misgender someone in a meeting, the person next to me and go, hey, I just, I just heard you remember it's they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. That doesn't send me into a shame spiral mm -hmm. because it's so normalized that I can just say, oh, thanks. You're right. I'm, I got to keep working on that. It doesn't, it doesn't throw a grenade into the meeting. It doesn't spin me off because together the entire organization is helping each and every person 
be better, be mm-hmm. more aligned with that well-intended heart so that we're showing up for each other um, in our best way, Hallie, and that yeah. we are all learning. We are forever, ever learning. And when we make a mistake, it is not a reflection of our, of yeah. our personhood. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. Thank you. Those, those excellent points. I think um, it's maybe kind of circling back, but um, if you have a true meritocracy, there's much less likelihood of these biases creeping up. And I look at where I'm raised and where I'm from, and I'm proud of my cowboy roots is the cowboy culture was one of the first cultures, American cultures to integrate. So back in the old West, roughly 40% of cowboys were, were black. Um, there were well-known trans people and, and, and gay cowboys and stuff that was part of that culture. And it's still there today because it's a meritocracy, which is why a lot of people that are in, the, in rural or agricultural, they're like, I don't understand systemic racism or anything like that. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you're in a meritocracy, but most of us are not. Sports was another one. It's a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And it took a while, but you know, now, now that sports is a meritocracy, somewhat, somewhat, um, and and more so than traditional business business organizations, the U.S. military is a meritocracy, uh, and so it's done phenomenal uh, advancement, uh, especially with race and gender, um, in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, the military has done an incredible job with um, normalizing what makes us different. Mm. Um, so I say all that to kind of set up this thing that. We're talking ultimately here as unconscious bias and unconscious bias is agnostic. So um, it applies to areas where you lack information or context. Mm -hmm. That's where unconscious bias shows up. So if you are, if, so answering the question of, well, how does privilege show up in organizational cultures? It shows up as unconscious bias, but here's the thing. It's agnostic. So if you have unconscious bias about privilege, you've got an unconscious bias about a bunch of things. You've got an over-reliance on data. You've got an over-reliance on old marketing structures. You've got an over-reliance on demographics as a, of a way of measuring you know, audiences. And, and so it's, it's, um, it's this idea that if you can see the individual and if they have, if they have social labels they would like you to use, use them. Because it's ultimately about the people. You don't run your business. The people do. The people that work for you and the people that buy from you, they run your business. Um, and so, um, and also market pressure and social pressure are the same thing now. So you, the, the, the other way I think that by, uh, privilege creeps into organizational cultures is missing entire audiences that might need what they are selling because they're not, they're only seeing things through a traditional mm-hmm. sort of white or cisgendered or whatever lens as, as far as audiences go. And so um, I think also it, it shows up when uh, privilege shows up when you, um, when, for, and, and we, I actually have a new, a new friend, um, that is a recruiter, a white guy, but he's a recruiter uh, that's based, he's recruiting specifically as part of DEI initiatives to, you know, increase the number of 
uh, people of color on the board or on the executive team or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and he, he points out that, that AI, especially related to employment, especially related to the algorithms that are scanning resumes are in many cases, and this is uncomfortable for a lot of people, they are, they have a tendency towards some racism and some bigotry yep. or some misogyny. Right. Um, because right. the because, information that got downloaded right. into because AI. They're, yeah, they're systems. That's yeah. what we're talking about here. They're systems. And so you re-examine that and you're like, okay, if I'm just hiring everybody off of what, you know, the, the AI, the robot says to hire, I am missing the humanity of everyone. And this is my like bold proclamation here. If you are missing, missing the humanity of one person, you're missing the humanity of millions of people because you're going through life with these, this very narrow lens. And you're actually even um, minimizing your own humanity yes. because to miss the yes. humanity of someone else is a void that we have, that we have. And so I think recognizing that, like it, even saying it out loud, I'm having a physical internal yeah. reaction of just, yeah. for me, the, the grief of my loss of humanity now, that I am able to recognize it now yeah. and the hope yes. and opportunity of how good it will feel when I become whole. Yes. Yes, I love that, which is why I think that, and I'm, I'm using this term that I made up called WAMS, white, white American men. So I, I actually leave sexual orientation out of that because there are a lot of white American men that are, um, that are like Peter Thiel, uh, who's gay, and, or Tim Cook. You know? So it's not really about sexual orientation at that level. Um, but us whams, we have to double down on talking about this. And I would challenge anyone that's listening that's a wham, a white American male, and you, this is moving your heart, is being an ally is not enough. You know, it's, it's, we're not being a cheerleader, being on a sideline, changing your Facebook status. And that's, it's better than nothing. Yes. It's better than being an asshole. Yes. But we need right. to double but it's down. A continuum, right. Yeah, it's a, it is a right. stop along a continuum. Yeah. And, and the double down is, well, what if you organized your business around your mission? Because I guarantee you, if you do the inner work to find out what your mission is in life, you will find that it has some benefit to equity and diversity and inclusion. If you organize your business around that, if you, if you, if you had the balls to take a stand with your business related to um, systemic injustice, um, then now I believe you because you're doubling down. You're doubling down on using your privilege. And that's my challenge to every white American male. And I would if say, here's the thing. That, if we did You're that. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. And it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable. And people are going to say, well, you shouldn't say it that way. That's okay. Double down. Double down on yeah. doing the right thing. Yeah. Innovation and perfection can't exist together. That's gonna, right. that's a, I, have to, I have to credit my colleague, Sharifa Rowe, on that one. You can't be innovative and perfect. They don't go together. <laughs> right. And you got to be willing to be messy and you got to be willing to listen and be willing to learn. So Could in we that realm, I didn't I'm have... just sitting with one thing that I'm a little like uncomfortable with. Um, and it's around, uh, and I heard you say, I heard you use the, the kind of qualifier of a true meritocracy. And mm -hmm. so I just maybe want to tease that out a little bit more because I think there might be some folks who are listening who 
um, need to hear it. Cause I heard you say sports is a meritocracy. And I would, and I think of, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm convinced. I'd say like maybe in a very narrow way, right? Like how you perform in any given sport and your skill set is the, is the merit space there. But when you look at that broader, who has access to coaches, who has parents or caregivers who can get you to practice, who has the financial, right? So it's like, it's that yes. And like, I think yes of the, the concept, but our greater society that is not actually a meritocracy creates these barriers that so much potential is lost. I just kind of wanted to. No, I'm glad you circle back to that because yes, it's meritocracy is really on, on the practice field and on the, on the sport field. There's not meritocracy for all the reasons that you said related to, um, you know, certain advantages that people have, but I'm saying on a spectrum sports, the military and agriculture has been more, more of a meritocracy than corporations or religious organizations or certainly academic institutions, um, which tend to be super white um, structures. Um, So I didn't ask you this in advance, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if somebody wanted, (laughs) if somebody wanted to read something, like you mentioned, you were, you're going to send me the link to the, like this checklist but mm-hmm. if someone, if you're going to have a starting point where somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, Malia and Justin are making some good points. I think I'm going to learn a little bit more about this. Where would you send them to learn a little bit more? It's just kind of a starting point. Oh gosh, yeah. So many places. Um, but you know what I think? Um, there is an article written by um, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, um, who's who's a scholar and, and, and well known for um, writing why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria, which I think in 2014 or so maybe had its 20 year anniversary. And she wrote an updated version. Um, lot, some change, lot still the same, but she's got an article that's called um, the complexity of identity. And it's about a four page article. And I can share that with you as well. Yeah, please send it. Yeah. Um, and through her study, she shares, and, and it really, it's, it's, it's beyond race. It's really looking, but she really kind of teases out that element of how, how it, how hard it is to talk about privilege. Yeah. And why, okay. why that is. Yeah. I think it's Mine a great be, jumping off place. Yeah. Great. And if you have that, send it to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'll put this in the show notes as well. It's a book by Isabel Wilkerson um called cast and it um it's mind-blowing as a white white person you know i i watched the documentary 13 and that was it was pretty good there was some stuff in there that wasn't factually accurate so it kind of tainted it a little bit but isabel wilkerson just really breaks down almost like prosecutes how we've whitewashed literally in Mm. this case racially american history and there's another book too called um, "Lies My Teacher Told Me." Yes. Um, I'll put a link to as well, Jim, uh, which is uh, Jim Lowen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, and and this is the thing that I say, and I say this with truth: any sort of institution that's got some insularism in it is that you have to un, you have to be willing to examine the truth of your origins. You know, even the concept of white whiteness mm-hmm. didn't exist until roughly before the civil war 
right. wasn't a term. We, right. were referred it's to it European. Yeah. 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 And you've sent me some stuff on that. Actually, I should send you, I'll post in the show notes too, the thing you sent me after oh, we great. Yeah. had our first visit, because that was like, so interesting. It's like, okay, so if that's true, then how could there not be like systemic racism or sy- systemic sexism? How could there not be? It would be a fucking miracle that there wouldn't be. So therefore we have to deal with the fact that the root produces the fruit and the fruit that we have now is based off of distorted history that people still benefit from that look like the people that wrote the history books. And the, and the, what about the soil those roots are growing in and getting That's right. from? Right. Yeah. Which is why people say, you know, the United States has a history, but doesn't have a culture. You know, I mean, there's a, there's an element of that too. And there's the, there's the beautiful side of that with the melting pot and come as you are and everything. That's true too. But we have to be honest about our roots. And, and I think that, I think it's patriotic to be honest about your roots, to be honest with you. I I think, I think nationalism, especially Christian nationalism is, is evil to be, to put it bluntly. So again, different episode, different topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been as expected, fascinating. Um, I love your, your eloquence on these ideas. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the work that you're doing in the world. And I'll link, like I said, I'll link to your website in the show notes. And um, I just appreciate, I learned a lot today. Thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah. And you know, for me, unpacking privilege and how I hold it, like, first of all, I'm not done. (laughs) I have so much more to do. Um, And it's, you know, the early days, it was scary. You named that shame, but, but pushing through to the other side of fear has been monumental growth and experience expansive um opportunities for me that that's what I want like that's why I get excited for other white folks to do it um to like hey get up if you get on the other side of fear with me this is so exciting and rewarding like it's irresistible I just want to keep unpacking now so I hope others will will be drawn to that as well beautiful great place to stop (laughs) thank you so much thank you